Hello, you are listening to the Nourish Gut Podcast. This space is for the woman who is suffering from digestive issues like IBS and SIBO. I am your host, Carly Raven. I am a naturopath, clinical nutritionist, gut health expert, and mother. My mission is to help educate you about IBS and SIBO and take you on a journey to resolving your digestive issues. I will have real conversations and give you solutions that I know actually work. So if you're ready to be bloat-free, poo better, have more energy and become free from the fear of food, then you are in the right place. Hello and welcome or welcome back to the Nourish Gut podcast. Your host today is Bernadette Field-Dodgson. That's me. I'm a gut health naturopath. And I work alongside Carly in the Nourished Gut Clinic and with the beautiful patients in the Nourished Gut Group Program. Today, I'm going to talk about the seeding of a baby's microbial garden, specifically in the critical development window of the initial introduction of solids into a baby's diet. So we'll talk about what makes a baby's digestive system unique and how to take this into account with the introduction of solids. When is the best time to introduce solids and when is the best time to wean from breast milk completely? We'll touch briefly on the different methods of introducing solids. We'll talk about the introduction of solids and how that changes a baby's microbiome and how to support a healthy microbiome development. And as a research nerd, we'll of course talk about the um, research that we have so far about the impact of different foods on the infant gut's microbiome. Let's start by talking about why the infant gut is so unique. So babies are not small adults. They're born with immature organs. And in the same way that you wouldn't expect an infant to get up and walk or be able to regulate their emotions... We know we can't expect their guts to handle food in the same way that an adult can. Most people know that babies' little bodies are not designed to handle solid food at all when they're first born. And in their first year of life, the gut undergoes a transition from a relatively more permeable state or what's conventionally known as a leaky gut towards a more mature and less permeable state. They have immature tight junctions, which are the protein structures that regulate the permeability of the intestinal cells. What helps this gut barrier function to strengthen as well as getting older? Well, breast milk contains important factors such as immunoglobulins, growth factors and prebiotic oligosaccharides that help the gut barrier function and contribute to this reduced permeability, but also the gut microbiota, the collection of microorganisms inhabiting the gastrointestinal tract has been linked to our gut permeability. We also refer to the microbiota as the microbiome, which means the collection of genetic material from all the microbes living in the gut. Depending on the health of the microbiome, it can work for or against the healing and sealing or um, decreasing the increased intestinal permeability. So what else do we have to consider about babies' bodies when we introduce solid foods? Well, infant stomachs produce less acid 
and have reduced digestive enzyme activity, especially for um, digesting proteins. This indicates that infants have a harder time breaking down certain types of foods and their stomach acid doesn't reach an adult pH level or the strength of the acidity of the adult stomach acid until they're two years old. And this means that babies' bodies are less able to kill harmful bacteria with stomach acid. So we need to consider good hygiene practices when we're preparing first foods for babies. Many people are aware, for example, not to give babies honey because of the risk of botulism. This is just one way that we protect babies due to their immature gut and immune defences. Babies also have lower digestive enzyme activity and secretion, particularly for protein, and the immaturity of the digestive processes can mean you can see plenty of undigested food in baby stools, especially in the early days after food introduction. And we can continue to see food in or undigested food in baby stools until about two or three years old. I just wanted to mention this because we often see concerned parents in the Nourish Gut Clinic who are worried about their one or two year old having undigested food in their their poos. It can be totally in the spectrum of normal. A baby's liver is not fully developed and functions differently from that of adults. And their kidneys are also immature. This means that infants have more difficulty regulating body fluids and electrolyte levels. And this is why we avoid adding salt to food uh, when we first introduce foods for new babies. Considering these differences, an appropriate diet for infants should take into account their unique digestive capabilities and their nutrient requirements. The introduction of solid foods should also be gradual to allow the infant's digestive system to adapt. And so that can look different for different families, but for my three kids, um, we started off with one meal a day and that was dinner um, because (laughs) they get messy when they eat their food and dinner was a really easy one to put them straight in the bath afterwards and get them cleaned up. So when is the right time or the right age to start um, introducing some solid foods with babies? Both the National Health and Medical Research Council in Australia and the World Health Organization and many peak health bodies across the world now recommend starting solid foods around six months of age. I want to mention this is a relatively new recommendation that has emerged in the last 12 years or so. I hear from patients often that their family or friends, well-meaning, have some contradicting advice, such as to let your younger baby suck some food off your finger or to add some rice cereal to a bottle to a baby as young as three months of age um, to help them sleep through the night. Firstly, there is no clear evidence that this practice actually helps them to sleep through the night. And we now have some really clear evidence that Introducing solids to babies younger than four months of age is associated with increased risk of allergy, type 1 diabetes, and celiac disease. Introducing food to babies younger than six months comes with increased risks of infections, um, so increased infections such as tummy bugs like gastro, but also respiratory tracts and ear infections. And also, 
increased risk of gastrointestinal inflammation and microbleeding, with the gut being so permeable at younger ages. The introduction of solid foods too early in infancy is associated with altered gut microbiota composition and a higher BMI in early childhood. There are some signs of readiness that we can look out for um, when to help us understand when a baby is ready for solid foods. And they include the loss of a tongue thrust reflex. So when a baby's too young um, and they you try and give them food, they will um, often just spit it out or their tongue will push it forward. That can be an indication that they're not quite ready for those solids. Other indications are that they have good head and torso control. So they can sit relatively independently and be able to support their own head. And this is important for um, choking prevention and for a baby to be able to expel food in the airway and keep it clear. Other signs of readiness include showing interest in food and um, watching the parents or other family members chew and perhaps even mimicking the chewing um, movement while you're eating. And they might even be reaching for food and trying to munch onto it. And for most babies, these signs of readiness appear around that six-month-old point, so around that time when introduction of solids is recommended. With previous recommendation for food to be introduced around the four-month point, babies didn't have these physiological signs and abilities to feed themselves, which meant that pureeing and spoon feeding was was a necessity. The change in recommendations has now opened up the opportunity for more infants to have solely whole foods from the start of weaning and be able to participate in feeding themselves. As someone who did baby led weaning with all three of my kids, I can tell you that the self-feeding method where you provide a variety of safe foods for babies and let them explore and feed themselves is fun and delightful to watch and messy, (laughs) Uh, but so worth it. I won't won't talk deeply about um, baby led weaning in this podcast so that I can focus more on the microbiome, but... There are many wonderful resources such as books and websites and social media accounts to get more info on this. Um, one that I love for baby led weaning tips, but also for tips on fussy eaters um, is a, an Instagram account called Feeding the Littles or Feeding Littles. Let's talk about the types of foods that can help support a baby's microbiome. If you listen to my pediatric microbiome um, previous episode on the Nourish Gut podcast, you might remember that in the first six months of life, babies have a less diverse microbiome dominated by a smaller number of microbial species. But after the introduction of food and until they're about two or three years old, the microbiome changes greatly with new species increasing in abundance and greater diversity emerging. A higher diversity microbiome, both in the number of microbial species and the evenness in which they're spread out, is a sign of a healthy microbiome in older children and adults. So let's talk about how the introduction of foods can affect the microbiome in the context of also meeting the nutritional needs of a rapidly growing and developing baby. For babies and people of all ages, 
The food that you eat can be used in a beneficial and gut-supporting way or in a way that causes quote-unquote bad bacteria to overgrow, triggering inflammation and changes in the metabolism of food, hormones and brain neurotransmitters. Babies, especially full-term babies, um, and when they've had delayed cord clamping at birth, um, are born with good iron stores. And the amount of iron in breast milk is enough to meet their needs until they're around six months old. And from six to 12 months old and onwards, while they're rapidly growing, babies require extra iron from foods. In fact, six to 12 month old babies require more iron than older children and even a um, school-aged child. So naturally, the processed food industry has caught on to this and offers a variety of iron-fortified cereals. As a hang-up from when earlier food introduction of soft pureed food was the norm, it's commonly still recommended that a good first food for babies is an iron-fortified rice cereal. From a microbiome-nourishing perspective, as a very first food, I advise strongly against an iron-fortified rice cereal. The iron that's used is usually in a salt form, like a ferrous sulfate or a ferrous fumarate. And these forms of iron are very poorly absorbed, which leads to high levels of free iron in the gut. And this can both feed bad gut microbes or pathogens and can cause inflammation. Instead of the rice cereal option, I recommend introducing iron-rich whole foods to babies when solids are introduced. As well as protecting the microbiome, whole foods rich in iron are also often rich in zinc, which is another really important nutrient in the 6 to 12 month age group. Red meats are a whole food rich in iron and zinc, and you can offer these safely to a baby early in the food introduction period in the form of um, a cooked steak, fillet or roast when you offer it to your baby in a finger length strip that's been cut lengthwise along the grain. This way a baby will be able to mouth and chew on the steak and suck up the juices that are rich in iron and zinc. Other ways that you can introduce uh, meat to babies are um, when you use mince meat to make uh, like a flat uh, finger length burger that baby can hold on to and um, chew on. Um, or meat made into a bolognese, or shredded meat, or slow-cooked meat that sort of melts, um, that can't be uh, brought off in chunks, that could potentially um, yeah, induce some choking risk. For two out of my three kids, the first meal I offered them was a strip of red meat, kangaroo fillet for my Australian-born child, and grass-fed steak for my Texas-born child, uh, with some steamed broccoli florets, broccoli being a veggie sauce of iron um, and some finger length pieces of steamed sweet potato and beetroot. And um, it gave me some strange <laughs> naturopath pride that both of these babies reach for the broccoli first. My third baby was offered red meat in her first meal in the form of tiny amounts of leftover lamb meat on a bone when we had a family meal of a lamb rack roast. And this is another great way or a form that you can offer this food to a baby because they can easily hold that bone themselves and suck and chew and get that nutrition without having to worry about large chunks um, that can cause choking risk. 
Now, if you're feeding meat to your baby, I certainly don't recognize, uh, recommend going overboard and like carnivore style. Like there are some proponents of paleo style baby feeding. Um, as important as iron and zinc are, plant foods also provide good nutrition and microbiome nourishing fiber and antioxidants to nourish a baby's microbiome. Many plant foods like fruits and vegetables will also provide some vitamin C, which will increase the absorption of iron. We know from research that the introduction of foods high in protein and fiber increases microbial diversity for babies. Non-meat sources of iron and zinc include legumes, which are high in both protein and fiber, and to a lesser extent, uh, whole grains, tempeh, um, which is a fermented soy um, product, can be cut into finger-length um, flat um, strips that can be introduced as a baby food. And um, another way you could introduce the legume family would be to puree beans like uh, chickpeas and kidney beans and mung beans and use them as a dip or as a spread on top of other foods. A naturopath and breastfeeding consultant mentor of mine recommends a mung bean utamam, which is a savory pancake made from ground up soaked mung beans. When I looked up recipes for this while I was preparing for the podcast, my mouth was watering because it looks delicious. I have some ground mung beans in my pantry and I'm planning to make it soon. And the spelling for it, if you want to look up recipes for your baby, is U-T-T-A-P-A-M for this traditional, um, I think it's an Indian food. There may be some cases where iron supplementation on top of dietary intake is important. Babies higher at risk of iron deficiency include premature babies, low birth weight babies, those who didn't have delayed cord clamping at birth, and babies who've had a significant amount of dairy products before 12 months at 12 months of age. I'll tell you more about this in a moment. I never recommend iron supplementation without a blood test to confirm um, at first if it's necessary. And if it is necessary, work with a microbiome knowledgeable practitioner to get a prescription for a highly absorbable form of iron at the lowest effective dose to prevent unnecessary free iron from negatively affecting baby's microbiome. Now, some people assume that all animal products or high-protein foods are high in iron, and that's not always the case. Dairy products are low in iron and have some additional properties that prevent iron absorption. As well as this, dairy products have been shown to cause um, iron loss through microbleeding of the gut. That might sound like a dramatic statement, but research has shown that microbleeding with dairy foods occurs in about 40% of normal infants after drinking cow's milk. It decreases as, as they mature. Another study found that about a third of healthy nine and a half month old infants responded to cow's milk with that increase in stool hemoglobin concentration. So that's how we can see there was microbleeding for them. But by 12 months old, this blood loss with dairy had stopped. From a microbiome perspective, an Australian study showed that dairy consumption in babies was negatively affected with species richness and diversity. 
The cow's milk dairy food intake in the first 12 months of life was also positively associated with higher levels of lachnoclostridium species. Um, and E. ramosum has been linked with metabolic syndrome in humans and in animal studies, it's been associated with upregulating small intestinal sugar and fat transporters, resulting in enhanced diet-induced obesity. Another study showed that increased protein from dairy, but not from meat or cereals, for a 12-month-old babies was associated with increased BMI and body fat when that child um, is seven years old. I just want to add that the obesity-encouraging effects of dairy products hasn't been seen consistently in older children and adults. Um, so the effects of dairy on the infant microbiome can't be extrapolated to these older humans with more complex microbiomes. From an allergy prevention standpoint, it's important to introduce dairy in that first 12 months of life. And once you introduce dairy, it shouldn't be followed by prolonged periods of avoidance, as this seems to increase the risk of developing a cow's milk allergy. So while I don't recommend cups or bottles of cow's milk for babies, regular exposure to small amounts of dairy, such as some quality yogurt or cheese, can help with immune tolerance. Like I mentioned with meat, potential adverse microbiome effects can be somewhat countered or balanced with a high fiber, high plant food, low processed food diet. Research on the infant microbiome and the introduction of solid foods shows that high fiber and high carbohydrate foods like whole grains, fruits and vegetables causes an increase in Firmicutes and Prevotella. Um, these uh, families of, of microbes contain well-known health-promoting microbes. One study showed that a quarter of babies between 6 and 12 months old don't get enough fiber, so it's important to focus on these whole foods over processed baby snacks. More research into the impact of different foods on the microbiome in that early food introductions uh, period showed that early consumption of fruits and vegetables was associated with greater increases in the Anorosipsis cocci species, which is known to protect against food allergies. Another study showed that when comparing a refined grain cereal product to a whole grain consumption, only the whole grain group of babies saw a decrease in Escherichia species. This genus can contain some harmful species that produce inflammatory metabolites. So how do you introduce whole grains to babies? Well, if you've ever put rice or quinoa in a bowl and presented it to a baby, you'll know that you can end up finding tiny grains on the floor far away from a splat mat can catch. When my babies were little, after I knew they could tolerate eggs, um, I would often mix some whole grains and legumes with herbs, grated veggies and some beaten egg and then cook them in a pan to make a thick savoury pancake or an omelette. This helped to keep the grains and small legumes like lentils more contained. You could also use whole grains in a veggie burger recipe. There's a whole grain pizza crust family that my family likes to make again and again using soaked quinoa grains, and it's the Deliciously Ella Quinoa Pizza Crust. If you Google it, you'll be able to find it easily on the interwebs. 
When it comes to cooking grains or legumes for your baby, I highly recommend soaking these foods first before cooking them. This makes them easier to digest and helps to remove some of the compounds that block mineral absorption, such as phytases. Each grain or pulse has a different required soaking time and there are charts online explaining um, the different time for each pulse or, or grain. But to be honest, I tend to soak all of my grains overnight or legumes as well um, and then cook them up the following day. Be sure to rinse the pulse or grain well with, in a fine mesh sieve after you soak them to wash off all the residual anti-nutrients or mineral blockers. Although I've been mainly talking about how solids um, impact the baby's gut and microbiome, it's important to not discount the effect of continued breastfeeding on the microbiome, as well as providing prebiotics, some of which can't be found in other foods. The metabolites from the microbiome-friendly foods that a breastfeeding mother eats can make it into breast milk. Carly sent me a cool study recently looking at mothers who drank pomegranate juice. We know that pomegranates contain antioxidants, including egalic acid, that positively influence the microbiome. As well as being healthy for her microbiome, this study showed that after drinking pomegranate juice, the metabolites of agallic acid were passed into breast milk. The breast milk microbiome was positively affected and babies drinking that milk had positive microbiome changes in their stools. By the way, no juice is recommended in the first year of life. So I wouldn't recommend giving that directly to baby, but the arils from the whole pomegranate, which is like the seeds coated in the flesh, they can be a wonderful inclusion in themselves in a baby's diet in their first year. So if you're doing baby led weaning, these are a wonderful food for babies to work on their pincer grip coordination. But as a small and round food, you'd need to flatten those arils um, like with the back of a fork um, just to reduce the choking risk. Whether an infant is breastfed during solid food introduction influences microbial patterns. Early food introduction is called complementary feeding because the food is going to complement, not replace, the main source of nutrition, um, which up until 12 months at least is um, still going to be breast milk or formula. It's suggested by the World Health Organization as well as other peak health bodies to continue breastfeeding for two years or beyond if desired. Continued breastfeeding provides substrates necessary to maintain healthy microbes such as bifidobacterium, lactobacilli, colon, uh, colonsella, negosphera, and valinella. And when compared with formula-fed babies, breastfeeding may increase the plasticity of the infant microbiome. In clinic, if I see a baby younger than two years old who was never breastfed or is not breastfeeding anymore, that's when I consider supplementing with one of a number of specific prebiotics. So let's get deeper into the nitty gritty of the foods that support a healthy infant microbiome. Something that we know from both adults and studies on infants that are new to solids are that more diversity of plant food encourages a more diverse gut microbiome. So try and offer a lot of variety over the course of a week. 
and be on the lookout for new plant foods that your baby has never tried. Challenge yourself to get a new variety of fruit or veggie, legume or grain every time you shop. Polyphenol-rich foods also nourish healthy gut microbes which support the gut. To get polyphenols in your diet or for your baby, look out for deeply pigmented food. Blueberries, blackberries, strawberries, plums, flax seeds, purple carrots, red potatoes, uh, broccoli. You can see those deep pigments in um, the broccoli heads. Red onions, carrots of all the colors. So your orange carrots, purple carrots, red carrots. And your grains of many colors. So rather than just white rice, red rice, black rice, red quinoa uh, and rye. And rye bread, a rye bread sourdough would be a great um, lower allergenic way to introduce bread. Speaking of all these colorful foods reminds me of a board book that I bought for my kids when they were younger. Um, it's called Edible Colors by Jennifer Vogelbass. I can recommend that one for helping toddlers learn the names of a variety of different plant foods and see the richness of color that these foods can come in. After reading that book, Many times, my kids get really excited now if they see purple carrots or yellow tomatoes or a blue potato. Resistant starch is a natural prebiotic that you'll find in legumes, oats, rye, cashews, uh, cooked and cooled potatoes, and bananas if they're less ripe. And foods rich in other types of prebiotics include lentils, onion, garlic, asparagus, artichoke. Just a little note that you may need to introduce these foods slowly. Baby's microbes, when you first start eating solids, are going to be exposed to a whole different um, feeding substance. And just take heart if your baby, you give them onion for the first time and it upsets their belly. It's not a sign that they can never have onion or never have FODMAPs. It just might need to be introduced uh, more slowly. That goes for all of these prebiotic rich foods. And just to mention the dietary factors that feed the quote unquote bad microbes or encourage less diversity in an infant's microbiome. These include high protein diet, a high fat diet, especially saturated fat and especially fat from dairy products. A diet high in processed foods, which crowds out the healthy colonic foods and foods with pesticides such as glyphosate. I think for babies especially, it's important to avoid added sulfates and sulfites in food. Um, and these you can find on the labels for processed food as additive numbers 220 to 228. These additives can feed bacteria which produce hydrogen sulfide gas. And hydrogen sulfide can interfere with the functioning of gut wall cells. I mentioned earlier in the podcast that babies already have an underdeveloped and more permeable gut lining. So protecting their gut lining should be an important aim for microbiome nourishment for babies, in my opinion. To wrap this up, babies have high nutrient requirements for rapid growth and development. And they also have underdeveloped organs of digestion and de detoxification and, under and immature immune systems. So with the introduction of food, we can selectively feed and nourish gut microbiome species 
that will either contribute to good health or increase the chances of poor health in the short, medium or long term. A microbiome nourishing diet strongly correlates with a high nutrient diet when you introduce a variety of nutrient-rich whole plant foods such as fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lean proteins such as meats and pulses, with dairy foods in small amounts, especially in the first 12 months. Breastfeeding can pass on microbes, gut microbiome metabolites and prebiotics to the microbiome of a baby, as well as digestive enzymes and immune factors. If possible, continue breastfeeding during the time that you are introducing solid foods and ideally until your child reaches two years old or beyond. If your baby is not breastfed and you want to explore supplemental prebiotics or probiotics to support your baby's microbiome development, or you want some personalized advice surrounding your baby or toddler's gut health, then please come and see us in the Nourish Gut Clinic. You'll find the details at carlyraven.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen and have a beautiful day. Did you like what you heard? Leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more about my Nourish Gut program or the Nourish Gut Kids membership, head over to my website. Would you like to be a part of a community that gets it? Join our Facebook group, Nourish Gut Community, or come and follow me over on Instagram. All of these links can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time on the Nourish Gut Podcast.